Good morning. Glad you're here. Glad I'm here. I want to remind you this morning about one of the most precious promises in Holy Scripture. Please pray with me. Oh, Holy Father, we thank You for the blessed occasion of the gathering of Your people. Oh, Father, if we know our hearts at all, we're glad to be here. Our desire is to worship You in spirit and in truth, to exalt Your Son, to sing praises to Your name, to honor You. Oh, Father, would You bless Your people? Would You speak with Your still, small voice? Speak to us what we need, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, listen. We believe that when the good news of salvation in Christ is proclaimed, people, some people, will embrace the gospel and repent from their sins. We believe that. We believe with Paul that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it's the power of God. And we are not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We believe that. We believe that when the truths of God's grace are proclaimed, when they are repeatedly proclaimed, sometimes some men, some women, some boys, and some girls will come to Christ. They will. They will. Some will. God has just ordained that it should be so. Paul said, after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21. Listen, there's power in the gospel. There's power in the gospel. And when the gospel is preached, God has ordained that it should bear fruit. And it does. Listen, It certainly does. At the very end of his gospel, Matthew records the commission that Christ gave to the 11 disciples that were there. That commission that's often called the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus met with his disciples in a mountain. And in verses 19 and 20, he commissions them and he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. And listen, we know that Christ's disciples obeyed him. They they did. They obeyed Him. They took the gospel all over the known world. They did. You may know that according to tradition, Philip was martyred in what is now modern Turkey. Thomas was martyred in India. 
Nathaniel was martyred in Armenia. And later Paul and Peter were murdered in Rome. And what were these men doing in all these disparate places? What were they doing? Well, they were obeying Jesus. They were obeying Christ. They were taking His teaching all over the known world. And listen, we know from the book Acts and from the early Christian history and from the very fact that you and I are here today, we know that they were successful. They were very, very, very successful. Those early evangelists went around the world proclaiming the lordship and messiahship of Jesus. They went around telling people that they could enter the kingdom of God by believing upon God's son, Jesus of Nazareth. They proclaimed the good news. They spread the teachings of Jesus and conversions occurred. Listen, conversions occurred and sinners became saints. And praise God from whom all blessings flow. Well, you know, and I know, that very few of those Converts became spiritual giants overnight. It just didn't happen. It didn't happen just like it doesn't happen today. It didn't happen back then. And so, what we find in our New Testaments, besides the Gospels, are collections of letters Letters from Paul, letters from Peter, letters from John, and a letter from James. Letters sent to correct problems, to amend errors, to encourage growth, and so forth. And listen, those letters weren't sent because things in the primitive church were perfect. The letters were sent because they were not You remember that epistle of James? Some have suspected that maybe James was from Missouri. You know, Missouri is the show me state. You remember that famous passage from James's letter where he says, you show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. James 2, 18 Well, I don't plan a discussion of the faith works issue this morning, but I do want to look at a precious, precious promise that's recorded for us in James's epistle. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. The epistle of St. James the Apostle, chapter 4. And look there, the... The Apostle writes, From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members? You lust and have not. You kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you have not, because you ask not. You ask and receive not, because you ask amiss, 
that you may consume it upon your lusts. You adulterers and adulteresses, know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of Holy Scripture. Look back there to verse 8. The Holy Scripture reads, Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. You may know that James's letter has often been referred to as a Jewish epistle. And if you look back at the introductory greeting to the epistle, James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. So if the author of the epistle is that same James who was the bishop at Jerusalem, well then it seems obvious that a lot of the Christian converts that he would have been working with would have been converted Jews. So maybe there's some warrant to call it a Jewish epistle. But listen, brothers and sisters, let, let Bible scholars call it a Jewish epistle if they will. But if they do, then I will say, he is not a Jew which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision that is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter whose praise is not of men but of God. So I'll say, I'm a Jew, and this letter is for me. This letter is for you. Listen, this letter is for us, Christians. If it's a Jewish epistle, so be it. It's for us, the true Jews. And brothers and sisters, there is a precious, precious, precious promise for us right there in verse 8. The Bible says, draw nigh unto God, and He will draw nigh unto you. You can mark it down. Etch it in stone. Pin of iron, point of a diamond, lead in the rock forever. Mark it down. Scriptural promise, Christian. Spurgeon was big on this. Grab on to it. Draw nigh unto God, and He will draw nigh unto you. That's a statement to the people of God. And if we were to personalize it, I can say, you, you draw nigh unto God, and He will draw nigh unto you. Let me ask you a question this morning, brethren. 
brother, sister, do you want to be nigh to God? Do you want to be near, near to God? Now, before you pop off, before any of us pops off and says, well, yes, of course I do. Before we do that, let me remind you that the history of God's dealings with men don't indicate that that's normally the case. In the history of God's dealing with men, most of the time, it seems that they are trying to distance themselves from God. Do you remember Jonah? Running from God? The Bible says Jonah rose up to flee from the presence of the Lord. How'd that work out? Remember Adam? Remember our great, 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 great grandpa? Remember him? As soon as he had disobeyed God, he ran away from him. The Bible teaches that our first parents hid themselves among the trees of the garden when they heard the voice of God calling to them. They didn't come to Him. They didn't come out at once and confess the sin that they had committed and ask for mercy. No, they ran and they hid. The natural effect of their sin was to harden their hearts, not to lead them humbly and penitently to God, Rather, to brashly run away from him. Really? You're running from me. (laughs) And when God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, Adam didn't seek him and come out and plead for mercy. Adam hid. Adam hid. And the first words had to come from God. The Lord God called unto Adam and said, Where are you? Where are you? It was God's voice speaking mercy to his wandering child. So the question that we're we're considering is this. Do we really want to be nigh to our God? Do we? Our Savior showed us how prone... We are to run away and stray and wander in his parable. You remember that one? The parable of the lost sheep that strayed from the fold. That sheep that if left to itself just wanders farther and farther and farther away. And we sing about it. We sing that old hymn, Come Thou Fount. And oh how true are those words that we sing, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Our Savior showed us this same truth in another parable. You you remember how He describes the prodigal son as gathering His substance and taking His journey to a far country? Far, far away from His Father. i got to get out of here. You see, the prodigal son couldn't live the way that he wanted to live at daddy's house. Daddy wouldn't put up with it. I gotta get out of here. When he was there with his father, he couldn't waste his substance on riotous living and harlots. His father wouldn't put up with it. 
So run, 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 run away. Yep. So listen, let's not be too hasty to say, oh yeah, I want to be nigh to God. You may. Some of you may. I hope so. But there might be somebody here who's like the prodigal son. And you might not desire to be too close to your father. You might want to run away from him. And listen, if that's the case, there's some good news that you need to know. God can change your mind. God can change your mind. As certainly as He changed the mind of the prodigal son, changed his mind so that he desired to be back with his father, as certainly as He changed His mind, He can change your mind. He can change my mind. So if you're here today and you have no desire for nearness with God, the good news is God can change your mind about that. And I pray that He will. Listen, this church prays that He will. And I hope you don't have to eat pig's feed to find out. I I, I hope you don't. But you might. God can, assuredly, God does change men's minds. So let's not be hasty this morning and say, Oh yeah, I want to be nigh to God. I hope we do, saints. I hope that we do. In his letters to the ancient church in the book Revelation, The Savior is grieved with the church at Ephesus. And He writes to her, and He says these frightening words. Listen. I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. If you read the first part of His letter to the church at Ephesus, and you see the things that she, that is the church at Ephesus, has been doing, good things? Well, it's enough to make you wonder, how could she be doing these good things and be leaving her first love? And I'm sure there are various analogies that we could think about to try to understand this, but the strongest one for me is the one that Jesus Himself uses right there. In the letter. And listen, it's a marital analogy. Do you understand that? It's a marital analogy. I've been blessed to have a relatively peaceful marriage, a happy marriage. And so I can't speak from experience here, but I've heard some terminology used when a marriage falters. And the terminology that I've heard is they're just going through the motions. You've ever heard that? They're just going through the motions. And if I understand what that means, I think the idea is that that married couple, they have no passion. There's no fire. Their hearts are not in it. They have no desire to be with one another. They don't have the guts to walk away. And so, they're just going through the motions. Have you heard that? It's sad. Listen, it's actually kind of sickening. 
Isn't it? And listen, saints, listen to me. If seeing a passionless marriage bothers you, then consider our Lord's words when He wrote to the church of the Laodiceans, a church that had lost its passion. He wrote to that church and He said, Thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. Because you're lukewarm and not cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. Like cold coffee. You see, the Ephesians and the Laodiceans, listen, they were not where they needed to be. They were not where they needed to be. They had left their first love. They had lost the hotness of their passion for Christ. And they had become lukewarm. Their desire to be nigh their God was not consuming and passionate. It wasn't. Their passion had evolved into a comfortable, quaint, quiet Christianity. And listen, listen, it made Jesus sick. It made him sick. I want to share some thoughts with you that I've shared before. But listen, Jeannie and I married young. And we realized that we didn't know what we were doing. And so we've read a lot of books about marriage over the years. Good ones and not so good ones. But I can remember reading a book about marriage several years ago that upset me and sort of depressed me. Because it was by a Christian And I'm pretty sure, I can't remember for sure, but I'm pretty sure that the book was called The Second Decade of Love. And Jeannie and I are well past that now. But I I don't remember for sure, but I think that was the name of the book. Anyway, the book was obviously written for Christian couples who had been married for obviously more than 10 years. And the author talked about something, and I think, if I remember right, he called it comfortable love. And his belief was, listen, please listen, his belief was that it's impossible to maintain a high level of passion in a marriage over a long period of time. And so, he proposed that after several years of marriage, The Christian couple should expect and accept that they will fall into what he called comfortable love. Well, beloved, I don't want to talk about myself too much, but I am the person that I know the best of anybody, and that's not what I want at all. I don't want comfortable love. 
I want passionate love. I do. I don't want my wife to endure me. I want her to desire me. I don't want to tolerate my wife. I want to adore my wife. I don't want her staying with me because she's saying to herself, well, I'm going to obey Christ's command. You know that command, let not the wife depart from her husband. That's not what I want. I want her to want to be with me. Like Cheap Trick says, I want her to want me. I don't want comfortable love. I want passionate love. Can you understand that? Christian, can you remember how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed? Can you remember? Do you remember when you realized God's grace in Jesus is not some abstraction? Jesus died for me. Can you remember that when you realized this is not just for everybody else, it's for me. Can you remember that? Well, let me ask you this. What if someone had told you back then when that that hour you first believed, when you realized how precious that grace appeared? What if someone had told you then, well, enjoy this now, sister. Because your passion for Christ and His grace and His kingdom, it'll fade over time. Enjoy this now, brother. Because with time, your Christianity will lose its luster. What if they had said, you know, sister, calm down. Because a few years from now, you'll not even be sure why you ever had such a deep commitment to the cause of Christ. Your love will wax cold. Your zeal will fade. Your passion for Christ will be quenched. And then, then, if you hang on, then you can enter into a quaint, quiet, calm, comfortable Christianity. You won't be nigh to God. You won't be passionate for Jesus Christ. You won't be in love with your God, but you'll be comfortable. You know, kind of like the second decade of love. What if someone had told you that? Would you be okay with that? I hope it makes you sick. Brethren, listen, if I, a fallen, sinful man, cannot accept lukewarmness from my own bride, how much more can our great Savior, how much more can our beloved groomsman not accept lukewarmness from His bride, from us? You see, if our God was like, Allah, or like Zeus, or like Krishna, or like Buddha, 
Well, it might be okay for our passions to wane. But brothers and sisters, don't you see, we serve the high King of heaven. We serve the only true dread sovereign of the universe. We serve the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy. Our God is the one who sitteth upon the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers before Him. The God that stretched out the heavens like a curtain and spreadeth them as a tent to dwell in. The God that bringeth princes to nothing. The God that maketh the judges of the earth to be as vanity. And not only, listen, not only is our God the high king, the sovereign, the ruler of all, but this, this is amazing. Listen, our God loves us. He loves us. He loves us so much that He has a special plan that involves cosmic war and even a covert terrestrial invasion to rescue us from the power of sin and Satan. Our God is a God who bought us from the slave block of sin with His own blood. He's a God who loved us so much that He gave His only begotten Son to die a criminal's death so that we can live forever. And I'll tell you this, to know this God, this great and holy and loving God, to know this God and to be comfortable and not passionate for Him is not acceptable. It's not acceptable. Beloved, I believe if it's to be appropriate, the service and love of such a great God as our God requires, listen, a life predominated by a directed and sustained passion for that God. The service and love for such a great God as we have demands a life predominated and by a directed and sustained passion for that God. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that if we believe what we say we believe about our God, then for us to be comfortable and not passionate, it's not a valid option for us. Not a valid option. Have you heard somebody say, oh, this young person, he's on fire for the Lord. Praise God! You should be too! I'm saying it's not enough for us to get lathered up and be on fire for this great God for a while and then slip into some lethargic comfort like what the author described in the second decade of love. Our God is too great for that. Too great for that. 
Listen, for, for you or me to view him with mere comfort, it's dishonoring. It's dishonoring. I grew up in the South, and you, you know, I've been in places where when a lady walked in the room, a man took his hat off. Why? Why, why do y'all do that? Oh, it was an honor thing. Listen, friend, we should desire Him. We should yearn for Him like the psalmist who cried out, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so my soul panteth for Thee, my God. Psalm 42, verse 1. The only, listen, the only thing acceptable is for us to maintain our passion. yes. I want you to be in love with your God. I want you to be crazy about Jesus. Yeah, I guess I want you to be a Jesus freak. A holy flame of passion and devotion must burn within our bosoms, friend, for our God. For the God who has saved us from the pit... For the God who has given us all things richly to enjoy. And listen, I know there are those that say, well, passion, passion can't be maintained. Have you heard this? It cannot last. They say, by its very nature, passion is transient and fleeting. It cannot be sustained. You know, the the great poet, Lord Byron said, and I quote, he said, there is no such thing as a life of passion any more than a continuous earthquake or an eternal fever. Besides, who could ever shave themselves in such a state? It's from a letter. Lord Byron obviously didn't believe that it was possible. But brethren, listen, I disagree with the poet. And I disagree with the author of the second decade of love. I want my children to know that I love their mother. I think they do. And I want them to know that their mother loves me. And I think they do. And I want them to know that we're not just comfortable around each other. So I disagree with Lord Byron. And with the author of the second decade of love. Listen, they're wrong. They must be wrong. Think with me. Think with me for a minute. When Christ wrote to the church at Laodicea about her lack of passion, her lukewarmness, He didn't just reprimand her. He didn't just say, well, this is bad. He didn't just rebuke her and that was the end of it. No. No, at the end of His letter, He issued a husbandly command. And He says, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Repent. 
And you know that repent means change your mind. So he says, be zealous. In other words, get on it. Get after it. Change your mind. Revelation 3.19. He doesn't just scold her and walk away. He exhorts her to change. Change your mind. In other words, be passionate. Turn back. Turn away from your lack of zeal. Be zealous. Repent. Draw nigh. Draw nigh. So I ask you, saints, do you want to be nigh to God? Do you want to be nearer, my God, to thee? James says, draw nigh unto God, and he will draw nigh unto you. Now, brother, sister, listen, we're the saints of God. Don't you want to be nigh to God? You do, don't you? Well, so the question must come, well, how? How can a man, how can a woman draw near to God? Now listen, I'd, I'd suggest that the very first thing that we do when we draw nigh or near to a person, and God's a person, the very first thing that we do when we draw, draw near to a person is we think about them. Are you listening? We think about them. So we can draw nigh to our God by thinking about Him. Our God is not fixed in any place so that we need to go on a pilgrimage in order to reach Him. Listen, we don't need to. We don't need to. One of the divine attributes is omnipresence. And you know that means that our God is everywhere. He's everywhere. God is a spirit. And the way to draw near to a spirit is first of all to think about Him in our own spirit. And beloved, listen, God delights in this. Our God delights in this. There's a beautiful text in the last verses of that last book of the Old Covenant Scriptures. In Malachi 3, verses 16 and 17, the Bible says, Then... They that feared the Lord spake often one to another. And the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before Him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon His name. And they shall be mine, saith Jehovah of hosts. They shall be mine in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son, who serveth him. They shall be mine. Paul exhorts the Colossians to engage in a sort of Christian mind control. Do you remember this? Colossians 3, he writes, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. 
And brothers and sisters, listen. What is the setting of the affection other than the focusing of the mind? When Paul's instruction here is to embrace a transcendental mindset. Paul's exhortation is to think upon our God. Christians, according to Paul, are to be thinking on the high and heavenly things. And listen, there is nothing more high and heavenly than our God. Edward, are you saying that we should all become theologians? Yeah. Yep. All of you. Every last one. So if you would draw not a God, think on Him. I'm a man and I think as a man, so I'm better equipped to speak as a man. And if you've bought into that marriage metaphor, and if you're not a newlywed, then you'll understand me when I say (laughs) that the appropriate Passion for your bride does not always come naturally. And listen, brother, that's because your nature is fallen. The reason why doesn't lie with your bride. Husbands, listen to me. The reason why it doesn't lie with your bride, it lies with you. And if you would be the Christian husband that you ought to be, then you'll have to think. You'll have to think. You'll have to think with beatific vision, with spiritual insight, with divinely anointed eyes. You'll need to remind yourself of what you have in your wife by God's grace. Remember, listen, listen. Remember, God gave her to you. The all-wise sovereign of the universe selected her for you. How do you know, preacher? Because you're married to her. God works all things together for good to those who love Him. And again, brethren, listen, if it be so with our spouses, and this is our Lord's metaphor, if it be so with our spouses, how much more is it true of our God? So brethren, hear me. Listen, if you would draw near to your God, think on Him. Think on Him. Think about your Creator. Think about your Preserver your provider, your guardian, your friend, your judge, your savior. And if you need help to think of him, read the scriptures. Listen, read the scriptures. Hear the gospel. Read about him. Listen, what we read about, we think about. Don't you? You can't help it if you're reading something, then to think on it. And what we're interested in, we read about. These guitar players buy guitar magazines. Why? They're interested in it. They read about it. Did you see the new one? 
So read about God. Listen, everybody here today, except maybe some of the very young ones can read, and I know you have limited time, but read about God. Listen, listen, talk about God. Talk about God. And try to talk with some of God's friends. With men and women who pray to Him, who have communion with Him. Listen, it'll bless you. It'll bless them. And beloved, I believe that if you draw not a God by thinking on Him, it'll not be long before He begins to show Himself to you. And you'll be amazed to find how He's everywhere. In every flower, in every blade of grass, in every drop of dew, in every grain of sand. And you'll begin to see signs of His presence. If you're willing to find Him, you'll see traces of His skill and His wisdom everywhere. If you think about God and you look at the workings of His providence, expecting to find Him, you'll not look long before you do. The mighty Spurgeon wrote, He who watches providence will never be without a providence to watch. He who watches providence will never be without a providence to watch. Pretty good. And listen, listen. Besides thinking on God, we can draw near to God by trusting Him. We trust God, listen, we trust God when we believe what He tells us. That's what trusting is, right? When somebody tells you something and you say, just because that person said it, I believe it. I don't, I don't have to go fact check it. If that guy said it, I believe it. Well, how do, I, how do I know you believe it? Well, because I'm acting on it. I put my money in that thing. The Scriptures tell us that Paul and Silas' gospel was, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And listen, that's either true or it's not. And if it's true, listen, if it's true, then I tell you, if you believe on Jesus Christ, you're saved. And you will be saved. And you see, do you see that faith, faith, simple trust is the key that opens that lock? How can I become a Christian? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to draw nigh to God, believe Him. Trust Him. Listen, take action based on what He says. Take action based on what Jesus has said. Put your faith in Him. Another way to draw nigh to God, repentance. Repentance. And I tell you, saint of God, listen, there is nothing that will put a damper on the passion in a marriage faster than somebody acting ugly. 
Acting ugly in a marriage is a sin. And when part of a married couple acts ugly, the only way that that can be fixed so that they can draw nigh again is for the offender to repent. And listen, how much more so in the spiritual realm? So saying, listen, if you're, if you're sinning, I, I have a sermon for you in two words. Stop it. Christian, if you're sinning, hear, hear the word. Stop it. Stop it. You may have done wrong, but listen, don't stay away from God and do more wrong. Don't do it. Don't try to hide your sin. Go to God. And tell him what you've done. Tell him you've done wrong. And plead for his forgiveness for Christ's sake. Draw near. Draw nigh with a penitent spirit. And say, you're right. I was wrong. I don't want to do that anymore. Listen, it's in his holy book where it says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, verse 9. Here's another way. Here's another way for us to draw nigh to our God. Let us draw nigh to our God in prayer. Listen, prayer is the human soul speaking to God. Listen, it's a person speaking to a person. I like Jeannie. A lot. I talk to her more than I talk to anyone else. You know why? Because I like her so much. Prayer is not the act of repeating something that you've learned or heard or read. It's interpersonal communication. God is a spirit. And you, listen, Christian, you're a spiritual being. And you can talk to God by praying to Him. Whenever I don't like somebody, you know what I do? I just don't say much to them. I just kind of stay away from them. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. When our Savior died, the Scripture says, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And that rending signified an opening. And since Christ our sacrifice has died and arisen for us, the Apostle Peter calls us a kingdom of priests. And saints of God, listen, priests and priestesses, the writer of the Hebrews encourages saying, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So listen, if you would draw not a God, pray. Pray to Him. Talk to Him. 
You know, if I told my wife that I loved her and then I gave her the silent treatment, how hollow, how hollow would be that profession of love? And here's another way. If you want to draw nigh to God, praise Him. Praise Him with a song in your mouth and thankfulness in your heart. Listen, what people find praiseworthy, they talk about. Man, have you, had, have you been to this new place that opened down here? They got the best blah, fill in the blank, that I've ever eaten. You got to try it. I'm telling you, it's good. Praise. Have you heard that guy sing? Have you seen that guy play the guitar? Wow. Is there anything that you can find to praise the Lord for? Have you any reason to be thankful? You? Have you any reason to rejoice? To be joyful? Ah, saints, listen. Let us offer to Him the sacrifice of praise. Sing in the shower. Sing in the car. Sing in the church. Listen. O Israel, render praise to your God. Listen, brothers and sisters. Is your passion how it ought to be? Well, if it's not... Draw nigh. Draw nearer to God. We have one of the great and blessed promises of Holy Scripture right here. God, who cannot lie, has written to you and to me through the pen of the inspired apostolic writer. And He said, draw nigh to me and I will draw nigh to you. I like that. No list of conditions. In the midst of all these other exhortations, James just throws it out there. Guaranteed. It's like, you know, reaching for the mirror. You know, when you reach for the mirror, that person in the mirror always reaches back at you. James says, here's the deal. If you'll draw nigh to God... He'll draw nigh to you. Love you, church. Please stand with me for prayer. Let us pray. O thou that hearest prayer, Teach me to pray. I confess that in religious exercises, the language of my lips and the feelings of my heart have not always agreed. And that I have frequently taken carelessly upon my tongue a name never pronounced above without reverence and humility. I confess that I have often desired things which would have injured me that I've depreciated some of my chief mercies, that I've erred both on the side of my hopes and of my fears. 
I confess that I'm unfit to choose for myself, for it's not in me to direct my steps. Oh, Holy Father, let Thy Spirit help my infirmities, for I know not what to pray for as I ought. Let Him produce in me wise desires by which I might ask right things. Then I shall know that Thou hearest me. May I never be importunate for temporal blessings, but always refer them to Thy fatherly goodness, for Thou knowest what I need even before I ask. May I never think that I prosper unless my soul prospers. May I never think that I'm rich unless rich toward Thee. May I never think that I'm wise unless wise unto salvation. Oh, help me seek first Thy kingdom in its righteousness. May I value things in relation to eternity. May my spiritual welfare be my chief solicitude. May I be poor, afflicted, despised, and yet have Thy blessing, rather than be successful in enterprise, or have more than heart could wish, or be admired by my fellow men, if those things would make me to forget Thee. May I regard this world as dreams, lies, vanities, vexation of spirit, and desire to depart from it for Thee. May I seek my happiness in Thy favor, in Thy image, in Thy presence, in Thy service. In Jesus' name, Amen.